And we're back. Welcome back to Drink It In Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you an extraordinary lineup of interviews where I sit down with some of the most influential rabbis of our time. Together, we will get a peek into the world of a rabbi, their triumphs, their trials, and everything in between. We'll uncover what it truly means to be a rabbi. This is Drink It In, the podcast, and I'm your host, Jordana. Let's jump into the Rabbi Roundup. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Drink It In, the podcast season 11. This is the rabbi season. I am so excited. I've been interviewing different rabbis. And one rabbi in particular I had seen on Instagram. Honestly, I had listened to him on a different podcast uh, with Asher Gottesman. I had heard you with Asher Gottesman. And I was so uh, taken in. I guess that's a great word with your story, with how you presented yourself, with how you touched the subject. And that's when I started following Rabbi Zippel, and he'll introduce himself in a second. And I said, you know what? When I do this season, I want to have him on. And it's such good timing. Also, I think you'll also share with everyone afterwards about your book. I mean, that just worked out. You know, timing-wise, which was unbelievable in that perfect sense, timing. Sure. perfect timing. But I would love just what everyone could get a little bit of a background, Rabbi Zippel, where you're from originally, because this is also about like being a rabbi. So not only where you're from, like was this your dream job to be a rabbi? Like, did you have this other vision of what you wanted to be? Like, I want to be a dancer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, maybe you wanted to be a fireman. I was, I was thinking about being a dancer. I was never very quick on my feet. So, yeah, that wasn't in the You know, so where are you from? What, what your dream job was? Where you ended up now? And then just, like, give us, and then we'll have a conversation about it. How's that? Sure. So, it uh, sounds great to me. Um, my name is Avrami Tipple. I'm a Chabad Shliach in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, it's actually interesting, just this morning, there was somebody in the Chabad house who came in for an event uh, from out of town. So they said to me, you know, oh, hey, where are you from? I said, I'm from Salt Lake City. So she says to me, she says, yes, but where are you from? I said, I'm, I'm from Salt Lake City. She says, yes, 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 but, but where are you from? Uh, and I had to explain to her as she was seeming to struggle with this idea a little bit. I was raised here in Salt Lake City. Uh, my parents started the Chabad house 31 years ago. And like hundreds and thousands of shluchim's kids around the world, I was raised on the job. Um, and I think that when that happens in most environments, the way a lot of the kids who are raised in that sort of dynamic grow up, usually it leads to one of two very different realities. Either they grow up in that sort of environment, and to your point, they, from a very young age, say, this is my dream job. Yeah, I want to do this when I when I get bigger. You know, I, I'm so sold on this way of life, and it seems awesome, and it it seems fulfilling, and this is definitely what I want to do. And I think some kids run for the hills. Uh, they want nothing to do with that way of life. And and there is a lot of truth and a lot of power to both of those reactions, as one might understand well. Uh, and I was in the first category. Um, I'm the oldest of six. I was very much raised in that sort of environment and kind of the prototypical shliach and shluchas kid. And from a very young age, this was something that I wanted to do on, on my own. Uh, and I kind of, you know, set up my life, for lack of a better term, to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I went to Yeshiva, I got smicha, I got married. My wife is the daughter of Chabad Shluchim herself in Northern California. And when once we got married and we spent a few months in Kailo, this opportunity presented itself. And we're, we're both here 
living our dream jobs. You know, we're both here living the lifestyle that we had envisioned for ourselves and wanted for ourselves from a very, very young age. And, and that works out. Uh, you know, I think that like any job, like any profession, there's a moment where you think to yourself, this is really what I want to be doing. And I think that every dream job comes with those moments of where you have to remind yourself why this was your dream job and why it continues to be your dream job. And isn't that life for all of us? I mean, I think that on some level, we all go through that. Uh, we yes. all go through that process where we regularly have to remind ourselves why we made the choices we did and why we're here and what we're doing about it. And, and life rolls on from there. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, for me, I think I, I had I had a passion and I had a dream when I was 18. And then life happened. You know, I just went along with the course and I became a teacher. And that was definitely in, in the mix. But then in 2019, I was on this trip and I had this experience that reminded me of that dream of when I was 18. And I'm like... Okay, it's time. It's time to revisit that. It's time to really try. I'm not getting any younger. It's really t time for me to pursue that passion and really make a go out of it. And so I was doing it a little bit, but it was just like in a different format. And then sure. I said, you know, I really want to do it full force, you know? Totally. And I think, I think all of us go through that at some point. Either we're doing it and, and we question why we're doing it or we're not doing it and we question why we're not doing it and should we be doing it and... I guess that's life, trying to keep it fresh. Yes, 100%, 100%. So you were living in Salt Lake City, okay. Then you you went away. Did you ever go away from home to go to I learn? I went home after Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, no, I mean, here in Salt Lake City, we all left after Bar Mitzvah. Um, in fact, when I was a kid, the the educational infrastructure that Chabad has now by in the way of online school and, and other such organizations did not exist yet. It was very commonplace among some of my friends to leave before Bar Mitzvah, mm. uh, 10, 11. Uh, nowadays, Bar Mitzvah is still kind of the going age bar or bas mitzvah. Uh, I left at Bar Mitzvah right after. My, my, I'm a, I have a summer birthday, and so you know, my Bar Mitzvah was in the summer, and two weeks later I was on a plane. And, you know, I, I on some level it's it's life that you know and so you can't begin to fathom something outside that um we were homeschooled as kids which led to a lot of interesting and curious questions both locally here in town and from the friends that i would make later on who went to more traditional schools who would try to understand what that's like you know what is it like to be at home every day what's it like to only be in school for three four hours a day what's it like to not have that classroom dynamic right. and i think the undervalued part of it is that's that's life you can't imagine something different than that. And so you just, you go with it. And, you know, you come to understand that other people lead very different lives and other people, other kids my age were in school eight hours a day when they were 11 and I wasn't. And they had classroom dynamics and I didn't. But at some point, the life that you live is the only life that you know and you, you, you don't imagine what's outside that and you, you go with it. Right. So it's so interesting that you mentioned homeschooling. I remember some years ago, um, so in the mornings, I'm a middle school dean and I teach eighth grade. And there was a boy that came to our school. Really, all of his siblings switched from homeschool into the regular school structure. But for him, his first year ever was eighth grade of being in a regular school. That was mine too, eighth grade. Yeah. Oh, so the, you're going to maybe you'll relate to this story. It was a crazy story. So he happened not to have been my student, but I was covering a class for another teacher. And I knew he was homeschooled originally. 
And I, my job was to give back the tests and tell the students, you know, please get them signed. So I give them back the tests and I said, okay, everybody, please make sure you get them signed. So he innocently raises his hand and he says, you want me to sign my test? So, and, and, you know, maybe another teacher, if they didn't know their, the, the student's background would have thought the kid is being disrespectful. But since I knew he was homeschooled, I said, oh no, let me explain. This is a form of communication between the teacher and the parent. I know that you know what you got on your test, but you bring the test home and you show your parents and then they sign it and it comes back. And that, that's how I know that your parents know. Cause for him, if he took a test, his parents automatically knew the grade. So it was like a, right. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. My, my, my mother administered my tests. Right. Um, so, yeah. so for him to hear someone say to him, get your test signed. He was clueless. He's like, what does that mean? Get my test signed. Totally, right? Yeah, yeah, I got that. I got that a lot. Uh, it, it is an acclamation. It, it really, really is an acclamation. And you go through it. Um, you know, you really do. You you don't have much of a choice. And, and I, I don't want that to sound you know, daunting or overwhelming. But you, the human spirit remains undefeated. You know, you, you make it work. You go through it. You do the thing. And you, you move on. Um, no one has a, has a perfect childhood. I think no one goes through their formative years without experiencing some sort of acclimation period and having to tweak the way they were doing things and, and start envisioning them in a different fashion. And so you do it, you do it and you move on. Right. Now, were you sent to Crown Heights? Were you, where were you sent? I was actually, I was sent to New Jersey. Um, there is a Chabad Cheder in Morristown, New Jersey, that mm -hmm. the year that I was bar mitzvah had actually created a class for a number of Shluchim's kids who were in situations like mine, who were not, you know, had not been in a day school until then and who were getting acclimated to leaving home. So I was in New Jersey in a, in a cheder for a year. And then I actually, I didn't do Crown Heights till much later in life. Uh, my my journeys took me to uh, high school in Chicago. I was in Yeshiva in London. Uh, and then I eventually make it to Crown Heights at some point. But <laughs> yeah, as they say, join Chabad, see the world. And uh, yeah, I was able to, to enjoy a variety of different experiences as part of my Yeshiva journey. And and so that was your dream to come back to your hometown. And so you were married and came back with your wife. Is that how it worked? Got, got married and came back. Yeah. I mean, 99.9% .9 of the time Chabad Shluchim will only get a post once they're married. And so mm -hmm. you, know, you, you finish your, you, you finish, you get smicha or you finish your yeshiva experience, you get married, um, you work a little bit, you go to Kailal, and you sign up for a post. Um, I, I was fortunate to have an opportunity close at hand. I had grown up in this community and I knew there was there was a space that needed to be filled. Um, a lot of guys sit in Crown Heights and you know are, are willing to go wherever, doing whatever, um, and, and sign up for some remarkable, remarkable assignments. I'll tell you this, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, I used to go to various conferences and, and summer camps and winter camps. And I was like, you know, where, where, Where's your family on Shlichus in Utah? In Utah, wow, wow, wow. Uh, 20 years later, 30 years later, that is not the case anymore. Uh, you say, oh, Utah, okay, next. Like, uh, and and you know, you have you have young couples that are sitting in Crown Heights waiting for a posting, and the posting that comes up is in the UAE, or it's in Zambia, or it's in you know the end of the world, and 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 couples take it. It's it's a it's a lifestyle of commitment. It's a lifestyle of dedication. And, you know, when I think when a young couple says we'll go anywhere, um, they really, they really mean that, you know, try it out, see what, it, see what happens, but they really are ready to go anywhere. And in most instances they do. 
Wow. And and your parents are still there? Are your parents My still parents are still here. Um, at this point, you know, there are now six couples that, that work and serve the community here in Utah across the state. And yeah, thank God. There's no shortage of things to do and, and, and work to get done. And they're going strong. Thank God we all are. And what do you, how about your kids? Are your kids, is there a school yet, an infrastructure for them by you, or do you still have to send them away? So one of the things that my wife and I made a priority and one of the responsibilities that we were given when we moved here was to create an educational infrastructure. And so we created a preschool, which spilled into a kindergarten and then into an early elementary school. Um, so my oldest will be graduating from second grade at the end of this week, and, and he had the ability to be in school through second grade, which was, I have to say, a lot further than we had ever anticipated this going. And next year, he'll be in, in Chabad's virtual school. Um, you know, but the school will continue to grow, and my younger kids will, will grow with the school. Uh, I have every expectation that they'll leave at, you know, by Bar Mitzvah. Uh, we, you know, we, we're, not, we're still a ways away from having a high school or, or anything mm-hmm. formal like that. But in terms of where they are right now, um, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for the fact that they have opportunities that I didn't have. Uh, you know, they have classmates, you know, they're in school seven hours a day uh, and, and they have the ability to experience childhood in that sense in a way that I didn't. Um, and, and that's awesome. That's something which is a tremendous gift from on high. And we're very grateful for that. And now your personal schedule, are you, are you teaching in the school? Are you more in a uh, like a, a pulpit type of position? What is your like official position? where you are. So my official position actually on my business card got changed as of a few weeks ago. I'm not the director of development for the Chabad House. Uh, as it pertains to the school, I um I, I teach sparingly. I'm I'm one of the subs that they call on when the when the cupboard really gets bare. Uh, I I more in a financial capacity. I make sure that the teachers that we do have get paid on time. Uh, okay. my wife and I also direct a very active young professional network, um, connecting young Jews who are here in town for their first jobs or settling down with a family and creating community around that. And I think that one of the very appealing things for me about the Schlitz lifestyle was the unpredictable nature of it. You know, literally every day you're doing something else. Uh, you know, it, it, it is very, very not dry. It's very not by routine. Um, you know, we're, right now we're in the, in the height of planning for summer camp and summer camp will start in two weeks. And then, you know, it's it's four weeks where your responsibilities include everything from, you know, janitor to bus driver to sandwich maker to, to everything else. And then it's the high holidays and you're teaching classes. And it's, it's it really is kind of fluid throughout the year, given the season that you're in and given the time of year that you're in and what the responsibilities are. And I think that's what appeals to a lot of people. I think that's what doesn't appeal to a lot of people as well. But I think for those that it does appeal to, I think that the constant fluid nature of it is something which really is a plus. Wow. Okay. So now we're going to touch on your book. So I know that you had just come out with a book, but maybe give the listeners some background to whatever you feel comfortable with in reference to the book, what, what the book is about your connection to everything and however, you know, the floor is yours. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? With the with the book being out, I think the I think the parameters of what I'm comfortable with have really kind of been stretched to their limit. There's no holding anything back at this point. So just kind of continuing this conversation from where we from where it was, my siblings and I were homeschooled. Um we were taught primarily by my mother. Um we are bunched very close together at the top. There was a lot of kids in, in you know over over a short number of years. And my father was out of the house most of the day. As I mentioned, the unpredictable nature, doing all the things that a Chabad Shliach does. 
my mother was home with us. She was also trying to teach us and also trying to care for the ones that she wasn't teaching. And so uh, after a few of us were born, my parents hired a full-time caregiver. Uh, they asked around the town, found someone who was very highly recommended, had a lengthy career in child care, and she became part of the family environment. Um, about a year after she started working for us in um, September of 1999, it was, um, it was just a few weeks after my eighth birthday, our family's caregiver began to sexually abuse me. Um, this started happening and I was eight years old. Um, I was eight years old a generation ago. Um, you know, we had conversations when I was a kid about stranger danger, which was the frame of reference for my generation. You know, when you go to the local park or the local playground, if there's a creepy man on the playground who's giving out candy to kids, don't take the candy, don't talk to him, don't talk to strangers, come, come straight home. And I think the world that we lived in in that generation was that the only people, God forbid, might entertain the bizarro notion of, of hurting children are strangers, are, are creepy people that you don't know. The person who was hurting me wasn't a stranger, uh, wasn't creepy, uh, you know, was, was part of the family dynamic, was a loved and trusted adult at that point. And so as as that's the scenario, I didn't really have the frame of reference to know what to do about that. It's not, it's not something you're trained for. And I didn't say anything about it. I didn't know who to talk to or what to say. And as a result of that, it, it continued. It, it went on for, for a very, very long time. And I was in a situation where I, I couldn't say anything. I didn't say anything. You know, you, you, the silence allows it to continue to some extent. Mm. Uh, I would leave home. As I mentioned, I would come back for the Yom Tovim for family events, for whatever the case was, and it would continue whenever I was home. Um, eventually, my my family outgrew the need for a caregiver, and she went her way, and, and everyone left on very peaceful terms. Obviously, nobody knew about it, and at that point, I promised myself that I had done a really good job of, of keeping it quiet while it was ongoing, and so if that's the case, then keeping it quiet while it's part of my past is going to be infinitely unimaginably easier. And so that's what I committed myself to doing in that at that time was just keeping it quiet, making sure that nobody could ever or would ever find out. Um, I got married, my wife and I had our first kid, and eventually the scars catch up to you. Uh, the scars will always catch up to you. Uh, and that's a powerful lesson that I've learned in life and, and one that I really speak about often is that you, know, you, can't, you can't keep these things down. You can hold them off, you can delay them, you can push them off, you know, you can slow it down, but you can't, you can't lock them away. It just doesn't happen. And, and eventually the issues that I was struggling with took hold of my life to such an extent that I was, I was in a really dark place. And I, at the urging of my family who had no idea of any of the backstory, I, I went to therapy and I disclosed for the first time to, to another human being that this had been part of my life. And that began a process of healing and a process of trying to put things back together, uh, at some point in time, I reported to law enforcement, and, and that began a journey of my life. And ultimately, uh, an investigation began. My abuser was taken into custody. There was a trial. And in the middle of all of this, I had to grapple with a really large decision whether to come forward or not. And when I say come forward, whether to come forward publicly. Throughout the, throughout the disclosure process with law enforcement, I, I had been able to stay anonymous, keep my name out of it. And, and there are protections in place for, for victims. Um, and at a certain point, there was a large possibility that I was going to have to testify in open court. And, you know, at some point it was going to get out. 
So I, in 2019, I made the decision that instead of it getting out and my having to forever play catch up to the story, um, I was going to tell it on my own terms. I was going to just get it all out there, which I did. I did in 2019. Um, there was a trial later on that year. You know, there was, I'm not even going to say what happened in the truck. So I want people to buy the book uh, and, you know, and, and the court process wrapped up and when it all did, when it was all said and done, I remember the first time someone said to me that, you know, you know, you've lived through this just crazy, crazy situation. You really should write it all down. And I was like, yeah, sure. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, you know, another person brought it up and another person brought it up and another person brought it up and then the you know, opportunity presented itself to, to do the project in a, in a complete form and fashion. And so um, about a year ago, just over a year ago at this point, when the book deal came together and you know, I wrote it over the course of this past year and it came out about a week and a half ago uh, and it made Amazon's bestseller list on Thursday. Uh, and, and so it's all out there, you know, it's it, you know, I, starting from very, very, very beginning, going through the years of confusion and the years of healing and, and the years of reporting to law enforcement and everything that happened as a result of that. It's all, it's all out there. It's, it's out there. And, you know, we're getting some tremendous, tremendous feedback about it. And it's it's really, it's out there, I think, more than anything with the hope and the goal to be able to help people, you know, to, to give voice and to give awareness to a certain extent to a topic that is not widely discussed in our communities, you know, to, to try and provide some sort of language for, for kids who are going through this, who have gone through this, that they should feel that they're not alone. They should know that there's other people that have gone through this that have, you know, to some extent gotten to the other side and, and, and can can provide that hope and that optimism for people who are still going through it and you hope to make the world a better place. Okay, so I have two main questions for you. I'm sure they'll lead to more questions. Um, when your parents found out about it, what was their reaction? So one of the things that I was very particular about when I was preparing for that conversation. Uh, I, I had been in therapy for a short while before I disclosed to my parents. And one of the things that I was I, I was able to understand right away was that this was really not their fault. Um, there's a perception out there, and, and this perception existed back in 2016 when I first came forward. And it, I think it's been debunked more and more uh, over the years, and I think it's still out there to a certain extent, and I think it really touches on a topic that we that we you know briefly glossed over earlier. If you believe that the only people that harm children are people who have visible red flags, then every sort of home that this happens in should be a glaring indictment on the parents of that household. Why is it that you let your children have any access to an adult that has any sort of red flag? If, however, we understand that the sorts of people that do this to children are are not always red flag people. They're trusted, loving, caring adults. We can also understand that it's not always the parent's fault. In fact, in many instances, it's not. In many instances, we come to understand that the people who do this are very, frankly, good at what they do, and they're able to avoid that detection because the parents would have never suspected them and society would never expect them. And so when I went to have that conversation with my parents, it was important to me to convey that information in a way that would not leave them feeling any sort of guilt. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was really intentional about that. And I sat down with them as a unit. I don't want you guys to feel bad about this because I firmly believe, and I said this seven and a half years ago, and I believe it with the same, with the same intensity back then as I do today, 
there's nothing that you could have done or could have not done that would have changed the reality. This happened because it happened. And so I didn't want them to feel guilty. You know, I wanted to share this with them and we would all move on from this together and it would all be okay. The funny thing about guilt is that, you know, you can go to someone and say, hey, I want to tell you something. I don't want you to feel guilty. It's like saying no offense and then offending somebody. Uh, just because you right. you preface and you don't want them to feel guilty, very often they'll still feel guilty. Uh, and so that's that's what happened, right? My parents, you know, my parents had to had to cope with that. My parents had to cope with the fact that they, they felt like they may have missed something. Um, and 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 that was a journey for them. You know, that was that was absolutely a journey for them to come to peace with that, you know, to understand what that meant for them and to find some wholesomeness in their life as a result of that. And one of the themes that I really try to hit on really, you know, really in, in a very crucial fashion in the book is the multiple paths of healing that inevitably unfold from from a reality like this. You know, you have, you have the survivor in the middle and they have their path of healing and they have all of their loved ones whose lives are affected by this sort of situation whose, you know, whose, whose path of healing unfolds and, and it leads into very different places. And everyone embarks on that journey together, but very separately because those paths will lead to very different destinations. And so for my parents, that was their path of healing moving forward is, is you know, figuring out how they were going to feel about themselves and, and their lives and, you know, the household that they had created. And, and, you know, that was, that was the work. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting you, when you said you already had started a little bit of the therapy before you said something to your parents. So it's interesting. Um, I'm just curious. Well, one, I'm curious, what what format of therapy was did you find the most beneficial for you? Because I know they talk about EMDR and things like that. So I'm just curious about that. But before you even get there is, um, did you feel, and again, this is a deep question, did you feel... At a certain point, and maybe you had worked through therapy, you know, and that helped you get past it. Did you feel perhaps abandoned by your parents or not protected by your parents? And then you came to that reality after the fact through therapy. But perhaps initially, even though now you're able to say with clarity, you know, what you are saying and about right. it's not their fault and so forth. But the initial reaction that perhaps you felt as as that child, that child within that that inner child feeling, where where were you? you okay, I'm just saying, I'm saying not, not, I'm not, and if your parents listening to this, I don't mean to make you feel guilty or anything. No, 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 it's a, it's a fair question. Yeah. It's a fair question. I'll start, I'll start with the first one. It's, it's pretty straightforward. I, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I gained tremendous benefit from what is clinically referred to as CBT, not to be confused with CBD, uh, CBT cognitive behavioral therapy, which is referred to you know, more colloquially as talk therapy. Uh, you know, really, just really on a basic level, you, know, you sit down, you talk about the, the situations, you unpack them, and you you move on from there. Um, obviously, as someone who has undergone childhood trauma, uh, EMDR is an invaluable resource. Um, I was actually on a Zoom call earlier today where someone described that you know EMDR is an incredible asset that needs to be paired with a more um, repairing form of therapy. And so the the, the analogy that was provided that I loved is if you've got a room in your house that's just a huge mess, the most effective way usually to set that up is to take everything out, throw out all the garbage, and then put everything back in in a neat and orderly fashion. EMDR is the removal. EMDR is taking out all the wreckage, throwing out the bad stuff, but then you've got to put things back in a neat and orderly fashion. And so um, I, I, 
I hesitate to speak about, you know, which particular form of therapy works for me, um, I, because a lot of people, I feel like, take that information as a lesson, you know, as, a, as an endorsement, you know, oh, you got to do it this way. There are so many forms of therapy that work for so many different people on different days at different times. And, and uh, you know, I really, I encourage survivors to more than anything, engage in a relationship with a mental health professional who will give you the comfort to try and, and you'll try certain things and you'll be like, Oh, that didn't work very well. And that's okay. And we'll try something else as opposed to feeling locked in to a certain style, to a certain path. You got to do it this way, do this thing this many times, you'll get this result. And if you didn't, I don't know, you're a failure. What should I tell you? Uh, and so, you know, to me, that's, that's a crucial, crucial reality when it comes to therapy, as, as it pertains to that, you know, that, that, at some point that I feel that, you know, betrayal or anything of the sort, I would, uh, I would actually clarify that the answer is absolutely not. And, and it's crucial to, to make that clarification. And it's important to remember that until I went to therapy, so for about 16 years from when the abuse began until I first walked into a doctor's office, I absorbed all of the shame around what had happened. And so instead of feeling somehow betrayed or let down by my parents, I felt like, God forbid, God forbid they should know what was going on, because if they were to know what was going on, they would really come to understand how much I was disappointing them, how much I was letting them down by engaging in this horrible, horrible behavior. And so, no, at no point did I ever feel let down or, you know, that I had somehow, they had, they had dropped the ball on my watch because for the longest time, this was shame that I absorbed. You know, this was something that I had done just terribly, terribly wrong. And as a result of that, I, I was the one who needed to carry all of that responsibility. Um, and so, yeah, I went, I went from there into therapy to understanding that you know, none of the shame belongs with me um, or, or anybody else for that matter, with the exception of the person who harmed me. And so I, I think you know, as I kind of look back on the totality of the journey, I think, no, I think there was, there was never a time where I felt like I had somehow been betrayed or, or let down. It was, it went from my absorbing all of the shame to realizing that I had been, I had been harmed, you know, I had been, I had been abused. And, and I use that term very specifically because I think that the real realization was that beyond, beyond the abuse in a physical sense, beyond the episodes that happened, and there were many of them, there, there was also the psychological abuse. You know, there was the, there was the baggage that you have to carry for years and years and years after. And that's all, a form and a manifestation of that abuse. And so, you know, for me, that was kind of point A to point B. And with that being the journey, with those being the stops, there never was a time to feel that sort of betrayal. Mm, okay, beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, besides putting out the book and doing the work that you do for the immediate community, I know you also, if I could use the word dabble, uh, with... Um, addiction, uh, uh, homes or rehab facilities that perhaps are in that area. How did you get into that? So interestingly enough, my, my father's been doing that actually for almost the entire time that he's been here in Utah. Utah has oh. a very large concentration of treatment centers um, for, for teens that are struggling with all sorts of issues in life. Um, it's a, it's a tremendous part of, of his work here at Newton. He, he's an absolute legend in that field. Um, I, I got involved more recently specifically with the kids that have, that have been through abusive situations. Um, and, and sadly there had been episodes that had come to light where a lot of kids who had suffered childhood trauma, um, you know, their parents 
perhaps rightfully so, they didn't know what to do with them. And so the only recourse that they had available was just shipping these kids on a plane and just sending them to Utah and hoping that somebody else would perhaps help alleviate their problems. And for children who have gone through dramatic situations, uh, going through that process uh, was the single most damaging thing to them. Uh, and granted, you know, their their behaviors are, are, are difficult and they're a little bit out of control and it's hard to figure out what to do with them. But what had actually been done to them, with them, was not really helping the situation. Um, and I, I think more than it more than it pertains to a specific arena or, or a specific set of circumstances, I found in this in this line of work, I guess you could say, that if you put yourself out there, people will find you. Um, you know, people people. I had a conversation with someone who called me last week, and you know, I, I heard out this person's situation. I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm just curious you know sometimes someone reaches out to you and initially in the phone call they'll say you know i'm a friend of such and such and such and such gave me your number you know or i live here i know this person and and as as this person is talking to me i'm like thinking about where they're from and their background and their community and i'm like i i don't know anybody that this person knows i there's no there's no degrees of separation and so i said to this person you know i'm i'm, I'm happy to talk i'm just i'm really curious more than anything and you don't have to answer this question how did you get my cell phone number and and she goes on to tell you, I, uh, she, she kind of beat around the bush. And then the conversation, she tells me, like, there was literally, like, you know, three loops. You know, she knows someone who knows someone who knew me. And I, I think just a reminder that in, in the world, sometimes what you've got to do is you've got to put yourself out there. And how the world will benefit from that the world will, will take care of itself. You know, the Almighty is a very big God and, and he'll find a way for whatever needs to happen to happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged to, to lead a life where I've seen that more times than I can even imagine that whatever needs to happen will inevitably happen. And, and you sit back and you put yourself out there and you, you make yourself that, you know, that vessel to receive the blessings from God and they'll all fall into place. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. If you could share maybe, uh, through being a rabbi and through your journey, what would you say is probably the most rewarding encounter that you've had? I know writing the book for sure, but I'm saying not on your own personal, but maybe in interaction with somebody else that you felt, wow, I can't believe I was able to help, whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to put words in your. You know, I'm going to push back on that for a moment because okay. yeah. I, I think, I think that, I think that within within the field of people who are communal leaders, let's just say rabbis, teachers, you know, leaders, when we think about our most impactful moments, the way you phrase the question, is inevitably going to be a situation where we were able to do something, where we were able to help, where we were able, where we were able to say the thing, you know, to, to have the insightful answer and, and to, to be the person that, that, that did something monumental. If I think about the most rewarding part of being a communal rabbi, it is the remarkable, remarkable human beings that I've had the opportunity to meet that perhaps the nature of our relationship began because there had been a thought that I had something to provide for them. And nine times out of 10, the balance of that relationship will end up going the other way. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. What I love about, about my job and about the, the path in life that I've chosen is that I, I find myself in the situation where I get to meet 
the most amazing men and women in the world every single day. Uh, and people who have tremendous elements to their life and things to teach and, and things to give. And, and, and you get to be in a position where you get to experience all that and to experience the broad colors of the spectrum of life. I think that's what, that's, that's why I stay in this. I stay in this because the almighty blesses you that you have the ability to, to create the most impactful relationships that, that you gain from. You know, I have, I have stopped trying to go through life, trying to always know what to say in every situation. You know, best case scenario, I'll be a really good listener. Uh, and, I, and I'll I'll find myself in a situation where I'll I'll be able to gain from that sort of dynamic, and, and I think more than anything I've also I've also come to a spot in my life where I'm I'm okay being in a place where I don't always have to have the wise thing to say because sometimes people don't don't need to hear a wise thing they they, they just they want to feel heard um, you know we we all we all can think of dynamics and relationships where we are we are sharing something with somebody else. And as we're speaking, we can already see the wheels turning in their head and they're formulating a response to our question and we're not even halfway through the question. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, they've already stopped listening to the question because they're already cooking up an answer. I have a notorious habit among my friends. Uh, you know, if someone sends me a minute or a minute and a half or longer voice note, now I'll start listening to the voice note and I'll start typing out a response mid voice note. And so I have this reputation among my friends, you know, people will send me a voice note that's 90 seconds long. And at the 30 second mark, there's a question. And at the 60 second mark, there's a clarifier to that question, but I'll have already typed out a response to the 30 second question that if I would have just waited for the 60 second mark, I would have found that my answer is completely useless and doesn't help anybody. I should have just waited and listened to the entirety of the message. So that's over. That's on WhatsApp with a voice note. But we right. all can think of dynamics in life where we do the same thing, right? Where we, yeah. where we don't listen. We're like, ah, this, the moment has arrived for me to say something insightful. <laughs> Everyone, get ready. Here it comes. Uh, and 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 for me, the most impactful part and the most enjoyable part of being able to do what I do is is to is to try to be another human being with people, is to try and listen and be there with them, you know, in, in their experiences more than anything, and allow them to feel heard. That's beautiful. Very well said. So on that note, then, what would you say is something that was the most impactful that you heard? <laughs> what was the most impactful thing that I heard? You're like, oh, I got to, like, you know, sometimes you hear these things, you're like, oh, I got to remember this one. That is a very, very good question. Um, <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, what is the most impactful thing that I heard? Um Early on in my in my healing journey, before anybody that I knew, before anybody knew that I was going through this, and, and you know, it's it's not like anybody was saying things to me intentionally, knowing what I was going through at the moment. I was having a conversation with a a member of my family who was struggling personally, who was going through a tremendous health struggle, and when people struggle with things that are clearly from God, like health, you know, health, we can't blame on other human beings. Um, I mean, nowadays it's trendy too, but if we all were mature and, and thoughtful about it, we'd realize that health, we can't blame on other human beings. So health, there is an ability to clearly see things as being from God. Mm -hmm. Shem wants this moment for you for whatever. 
And I, I was speaking to this person and he was sharing with me that, you know, he's going through this health struggle and a lot of people are reaching out to him with all sorts of explanations. Oh, the reason you're struggling is because of this, is because of that. And he says, you know, these these explanations, they're not they're not they're not doing it for me. I'm not I'm not feeling any better because people have somehow found justification or rationalization what I'm going through. So I said to him, I said, I, I, I oh, so so what's the alternative? You know, if all of these answers and beautiful thoughts are not moving the needle for you, what what is a good spot for you to be in? So he he says to me, it was his by phone, he says, I don't know. I, I don't know that I need an answer right now. It is okay for me to be in a tough spot and turn to the Almighty God and say, I don't know what you want from me here. I don't know what you want from me here. So I'm instead of me putting words into your mouth, you being God in the situation, saying, ah, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. It's for this and this and this, isn't it? I I just I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to Hashem and say, I don't know what you want. I don't know what you want. And all I can really hope for in this moment is that you give me the wherewithal to help me discover what you hope to accomplish over here. Like just, just show me, show me where this is supposed to go. Point me in a direction and I will walk. Just at this moment, I'm somewhat unclear as to what the direction is. And that really stuck with me. That really stuck with me. And, and this was at a point in my journey, you know, before I really started having to grapple with the reality of what the what the heck does God want from me? You know, when you go to therapy and you come to understand that this is your life's journey, at some point you ask yourself, what are you doing? Almighty God, what are you doing? What What do you want? Again, point me in a direction and I will walk. But but what what is the direction? What do you, what do you see in all of this? And having that question is okay. I, I think that a lot of people feel that Yiddishkeit is about being in a position where every question instantaneously needs an answer. And in my experience, I found that not to be the case. I think Yiddishkeit is a, is a reality that, that welcomes questions that inspire more action. And I think turning to the Almighty God and saying, look, I'm sure you've got this figured out. I haven't got it figured out. And so you would be so kind as to enlighten me as to what exactly you're planning with all of this, I would be forever grateful. And and, and you, you're not going to get an answer right away, right? You're not going to get an answer that minute or that day. It might take weeks or months or years, frankly, for that, for that direction to become apparent. But I think that living in a mindset where having that question was okay and it was, it was all right. And it was, you know, it was okay to be in that questioning phase, giving myself permission to do the same thing when, when that time came for me, was was very powerful. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. So if somebody wanted to get your book, you want to tell everyone what the name of your book is? And sure. We'll so the name, of the, book, the, the name of the book is Not What I Expected. Uh, you can go on Amazon and you can look under Not What I Expected. I found out there's three other books or I don't even know if it's a movie or anything, but there's three other uh, offerings on Amazon under the same name. Um, mine is the one that has a picture of my face on it. Uh, for your listeners that are in the New York area, I strongly encourage you to support local. Um, Judaic World in Kern Heights carries it in stock. Eichler's in Barra Park and in Flatbush each carry it in stock. Um, but yes, it's available on Amazon with prime shipping. You can get it in some places in a day or two. And I'm excited for people to pick it up. I'm excited. You know, the feedback that we've been getting has been tremendous. Um, and, and we're excited to, to, to see where that keeps going. 
And now if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best form of reaching out to you? I try to be very responsive on social media. Uh, sometimes it is easier said than done, mm -hmm. but it's at least my stated intention at this point. Um, I'm at Utah Rabbi on every platform that exists. Um, and and I, I encourage people to reach out. I really do. Uh, you know, if, if, with, with questions or comments or feedback, or, you know, other survivors, whatever the case is, I, I welcome the opportunity to talk and to share. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous part of my life. Thank you so much for taking the time for being on my podcast. It was quite a rewarding and enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Drink It In is sponsored by OKClarity.com. OKClarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how from or religious you are, to find a top-notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted and have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. If you're in the market for a therapist, coach, nutritionist, psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you can complete a short form and they will personally match you. If you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and professionals receive referrals effortlessly. OK Clarity also has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 8,000 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor. So you'll laugh too. If you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. That's 917-426-1495. And we'll put those links in their website in the notes. So smash those links. You won't regret it. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Drink It In, the podcast. You can find all my episodes and so much more at maverickpodcasting.com. Come connect and say hi with me on Instagram at drinkitin underscore Jordana. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.